How are we doing? Going to old school this morning. It's a great privilege to be here with you. It's really uh, exciting, and as Pastor Dan mentioned, it was here at this church that we, my wife and I, came to Christ in the early 90s, and it was during the course of the 90s when we spent our time here that our spiritual foundation was laid by Dan and the other staff members as they just opened the Word of God uh, and helped us to learn uh, to love it and to learn to understand it, and so we're grateful to him for his years of faithfulness and to the elders here and to many of you. I did meet someone in the lobby between services, and I apologized to him, and I maybe should apologize to some of you. For any of you who knew me back in the early 90s, it might be hard to, for me to stand up now <laughs> as an adult and listen to you, but thank you for your long suffering. So those of you who don't know me, perhaps this will go easier. Um, not only did I meet uh, my wife here, but my wife and I were actually the first couple to be married right here in the sanctuary. Remember that, sweetie? She does. 15 years this year, and we're so glad to, to be back and to be spending this summer for just a little bit of time here at the chapel. I'm going to invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Psalm 27. Please turn with me to Psalm 27. The focus of our text this morning or the focus of our study, rather, is the text found in Psalm 27, verses 1 through 6. The last few decades in the Middle East have been anything but decades of peace and stability. Anything but decades of peace and stability has characterized these last few decades. And the last few years have certainly been no exception to this. Upheaval and chaos, violence and destruction have affected so very many countries in the Middle East. Countries like Libya, Egypt, and Syria have all been affected. The small country of Lebanon has not been, been immune. There is disorder and confusion. There is growing fighting and bloodshed. Perhaps the worst of the time in Lebanon in, in recent years, was around the turn of the year, around New Year's, those two, year, or two months uh, around New Year's of this year, there were nine suicide bombings. Nine suicide bombings in eight weeks occurred in Lebanon. Five of those occurred in the capital city near where we make our home. The targets were both military and civilian. Men, women, and children were killed. Most of them simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. It appears that a number of the bombings were targeted at individuals or at places, but it appears that some of the bombings were somewhat random, simply designed to cause chaos, chaos death, and confusion. One such suicide bombing targeted a public bus, more like a 12-passenger van, these buses are all over the city, and apparently one of the suicide bombers boarded the bus in an outskirts of the city, intending to take the bus down into the heart of the city and blow himself up, thereby causing the maximum amount of confusion, disorder, and increasing the level of fear. For whatever reason, he didn't make it into the center of the city, and so he just blew himself up on the bus before he arrived that day. That bus is the very same bus that we only discovered afterwards 
is the bus that a friend of my wife's takes almost every day. Now, in God's goodness, she was not on the bus that day. But as you might expect, problems were growing. Fear set in across Lebanon and especially across the capital city of Beirut. In certain parts of the city, businesses dropped 40 or 50 percent because people were simply afraid to go out to do their shopping. Malls that are usually extremely busy were eerily empty, and finding parking was no longer the challenge that it had been. Perhaps in some ways the children suffered the, the most because the children would typically, uh, in the morning they would go to school, in the afternoon they would come home, and many of them would not go outside. They would stay in their homes all evening, and then the next morning go to school and come back and do it again because parents and grandparents were too afraid to let them play outside. As you might expect, the bombs and the violence were a constant source of conversation, both publicly and privately. Suspicion and discrimination and fear skyrocketed. The best way to describe the atmosphere at that time in the capital was one of fear. The Beirutis were fearful. Now, as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are not immune to fearful situations. Oh, no. In fact, you and I can regularly experience times of fear. Now, we might not be exposed to that kind of danger on a regular basis here in southeast Missouri, but we can be fearful nonetheless. We might call that fear more ordinary, more commonplace fear, but as Christians, we can and do experience fear and we can be tempted by many situations to doubt our God and to be fearful. Today, as we look at our text, we are going to three, see three thoughts, three areas of consideration that will help us deal with our fear. For you have fears, maybe more ordinary, maybe more commonplace type fears, but you have fears and you need to learn to deal with them rightly in the Lord. Psalm 27 the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Today in our text, we see three thoughts that will help us deal with our fear. And you need to learn to deal with your fear. And the first thought that we have here, the first consideration in verse 1, is that you need to consider your God when you are tempted to fear. When fear comes against you and you need to deal with that, consider your God. Verse 1 again. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? David asked the question twice, whom shall I fear? And of course, the answer is obvious, isn't it? The obvious answer is no one. When David thinks about God, when David considers his Lord, he knows that he has no valid reason to fear anyone at all. Because David knows God, he fears no one. The thought of God helped David to overcome his fear. And the thought of God can help you to overcome your fear as well. Now, when we speak of fear this morning, we're not talking about that feeling that some of us get when we kind of hear a loud noise. When we talk about fear this morning, we are not discussing that feeling that some of us get when we come around a corner and we meet someone else face to face and we kind of take that step back. When we talk about fear this morning, as David did, we are talking about what one author wrote of as moral cowardice. Moral cowardice. You see, fear is the lack of courage to do what is right. Fear occurs when I am so apprehensive about the consequences of doing right that I simply refuse to do right. Fear happens when I am so apprehensive about what will happen when I do right that I refuse to obey. There was a man before King David who had this kind of fear. His name was King Saul. And if we were to, uh, to flip back in our Bibles to 1 Samuel 15, we would be reminded of a story, a historical story, an account, really, of what happened in King Saul's life. In 1 Samuel 15, King Saul was given a command that he did not obey. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul was commanded by the Lord through Samuel to go and wipe out a group of people called the Amalekites. And the command from God through Samuel was clear. Saul was to wipe everything out, annihilate them, including their livestock, anything that breathed. And yet Saul did not do this. He spared some of the livestock, some of the sheep and oxen. And when Saul was first confronted with this, he did what we often do. He pretended like he hadn't done anything wrong. Saul was, uh, who, me? And then after a little while, Saul did what we often do as well. He said, who, me? No, not me. Must have been them. He blamed it on somebody else. He blamed his disobedience on someone else. But finally, under pressure from Samuel, Saul confessed, and Saul gave the real reason for his lack of obedience. And it's recorded for us clearly in 1 Samuel 15, 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and I listened to their voice. You see, Saul knew what was right. The command, albeit harsh somewhat, was very, very clear. There was no question about what Saul should have done. And yet he did not do it. Saul lacked the courage to do what was right. He was a moral coward. He feared the consequences of his obedience. He feared the people. Folks, perhaps this is even more astonishing when we remember that Saul was the king, that Saul had just led his people in a great military conquest, 
He was a man of mighty valor, and yet he was a moral coward. He disobeyed a clear command from the Lord because he feared what would happen if he fully obeyed. King David, of course, would have experienced many opportunities to be afraid. And this psalm, Psalm 27, is a psalm of David that I believe overflows out of David's heart at a time when he was tempted to fear. This is no ivory tower psalm. David wasn't sitting in his palace in peace and safety and security one time, just kind of pinning this psalm. I don't believe that. I believe this psalm came out of his heart, his cry of his heart when he was tempted to be fearful because of a particular circumstance in his life. We don't know all those details. But as David is tempted to fear, he responds to his fear by pinning these truths. And the first thing that David did in verse 1 is he considers his God. He considers the Lord. It's important to note something. It's important to note that when David considers the Lord, he isn't just philosophizing about the abstract concept of a God out there somewhere. God, the one who created everything, the one who spun the world into existence, God. No. When David thought about God, he was considering his Lord. When David thought about God, he was considering the one with whom he had a very real, a very intimate, and a very personal relationship with. He was thinking about a person. Perhaps this truth was brought home to me most vividly when about six weeks ago, my family and I were flying in from the Middle East and we were landing at an airport in Dallas. And as typically happens when you fly, then you have to land and you come down from a great altitude and as you descend, the atmospheric pressure changes. And I'll never forget perhaps when one of my young children suddenly looked at me on that sharp descent and there were just tears in the eyes of my child. And they were crying, and they, said, and they said, Daddy, what's wrong? Daddy, my ears hurt. Daddy, I don't know what's wrong. Daddy, I'm scared. Daddy, why do my ears hurt? You see, in that moment, my child wasn't philosophizing about the idea of father. Father. The one who provides for me the one who disciplines me, the one who likes to spend his time with mom, father. No, my particular child was scared. What did they want? They wanted a person whom they knew in a relationship. In this particular case, they wanted me. Now, you will do me a favor and not tell that particular child that the reason his ears hurt is because I forgot to pass him his gum. Please do me that favor. But nonetheless, he, in his fear, cried out for a person. David, in his fear, doesn't cry out for a concept. He also cries out for a person. He cries out for the Lord. Look again at verse 1. It says, the Lord. In almost every Bible translation, the word Lord there is rendered in small capital letters. That is the translator's way of telling us that this is not the generic word for Lord, but it is the personal name of God. This personal name of God has been translated by some to be pronounced as Yahweh. But whatever the exact translation, this is the personal name of God that is given in the Scriptures. It is used by David 13 times in this psalm. It is used by David six times in the first six verses of this psalm. 
And it is used by the psalmists in 25% of all the verses in all the psalms. The personal name of the Lord evokes that knowledge of a relationship with him. David cries out to his Lord, his God, a person. And he calls the Lord my light. He says, the Lord is my light. Now, when we think of God and when we think of the idea of light, the two are closely associated in the scriptures. Genesis chapter 1, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Psalm chapter 4 and verse 6, many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. A great verse in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16, the apostle Paul, writing about the Lord, says, Who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. See, God is the creator of light. God is the one whose favor in his face is referred to as the light of his countenance. God is the one who wraps himself, as it were, in light. God is the one who dwells in light unapproachable. What a great God of light. And yet that God, that God is David's God. That God David refers to as my light. Only here in the Old Testament is God actually referred to as light. The other things were describing different aspects. But here, David calls him my light. And that's the only time that happens in the Old Testament where God is referred to as light. And David said he's my light. In the Bible, light indicates what is good and right. Light has connotations of wisdom and life and favor. But perhaps most strongly, light indicates safety and security. Now, we instinctively know this even in life, especially about physical light. No one, or at least no person in their right mind, ever said, I'm scared, turn off the lights. Rather, people, when they're frightened, both young and old, say, please, turn on the lights. For in light is safety, in light is security. But David goes on, and he doesn't just call the Lord my light, the one who has enlightened his heart and his soul. He goes on, and he calls the Lord my salvation. Now, in the Old Testament, salvation could have had a, a very real physical connotation. For example, when God called that wretched nation of slave people out of Egypt, the Israelites, it is said that God saved his people. And David, as a military man and as a king, would have been physically saved many times. But here the meaning is clearly spiritual. How do we know that? Look at the verse. It says, the Lord is my light. Does anybody believe that, say, that David was saying, the Lord is my big nightlight stuck on the wall of the castle? Absolutely not. Makes no sense. The Lord is the one who enlightened David's soul. The, the Lord is the one who poured light into the dark recesses of a frightened heart. And the Lord is the one who provides a very real spiritual salvation. But this salvation wasn't just offered to one man, the king of Israel. This salvation wasn't just offered to one nation. Rather, this salvation, this light is offered to all. 
Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. What a great verse. I believe that if you are here this morning, it is no accident. God brought you here. And if for some reason you are here this morning and you cannot say with David, my light, my salvation, because you do not know Jesus Christ, you do not have a real and personal relationship with him, that invitation is for you. Turn to God and be saved, for he is God and there is no other. You need Christ. And let me tell you this morning, if you do not have Christ, you have a reason to fear. You have a great reason to fear if you do not know the Lord in a real and personal relationship. But if you do know the Lord, if you can say with David, my light and my salvation, you do not have a reason to fear. David goes on in verse 1 again. He says, the Lord is the defense of my life. A defense can also be translated at refuge. It's a place to take cover when there's danger. It's a place to hide when you are afraid. It's a place where you run when you need safety and security. Now, it's important to note that this word does not have a connotation of the removal of all fear-inducing situations. This word does not indicate the sudden or magical removal of all danger. Rather, it might be easier and better to understand it as a castle on a hill. If the enemy were to approach a town, an enemy army, the the people could retreat into a, a walled city or a castle for a defense. Merely by retreating into that castle, the enemy didn't spontaneously disappear. Of course not. Rather, that castle was there as a defense for as long as the danger might be there. It was a refuge. It was a safe place when there was a fear tempting situation. The Lord is like that for David. David, as the, a king, as the leader of a, of a people, would have experienced many times of fear. But he could run to God. He could hide in God. And that didn't make his problems magically go away, but he had a safe place to rest and to weather the storms of life. When he was scared, he could go to God. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe, says Proverbs 18.10. If you know God, think about him so that you won't be afraid. But let me ask you this, dear Christian. Think just for a moment in your heart and ask yourself the question, how many times have I not obeyed my God simply because of fear? How many times have I acted more like Saul than I have David? I'm not talking about those times where you might have lacked wisdom or been confused. I'm talking about most of your life and most of my life because most of the time how we should obey our God is quite clear and the commandments are very obvious. How many times have you been supposed to share Christ with your unsaved neighbor and you didn't? Folks, we call that a no-brainer. Share the gospel with people. That is so clear in Scripture. How many times have we sought to open our mouths to share the life-giving message about the one who is light and is salvation and fear just closed us down? How many times, dear brother or sister, have you failed to obey in your home, in your workplace, in your university, when you knew the right thing to do and you didn't do it simply and only because you were afraid of what would happen if you actually obeyed? You were more afraid of the consequences of obedience. Perhaps like Saul, you feared losing the favor of people 
you feared losing some comfort. This psalm is teaching us to deal with our fear. The first verse is telling us that we need to consider our God. When you are tempted to fear, consider your God. Verses 2 and 3 teach us to consider our history with God. When you're tempted to fear, consider your God. But also when you're tempted to fear, consider your history with your God. When evildoers came upon me, verse 2 again, when evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Earlier when we talked about fear, we said fear was moral cowardice, a lack of courage to do what we should do. But fear can be more than that. Fear can be the anxious worrying about potential future misfortune. Or to put it more simply, fear can be worrying about tomorrow. Fear can be worrying about the unknown, what hasn't happened yet. Because we can be tempted to fear that way, can't we? We can be tempted to fear about, well, about what we don't know and about what has not happened yet. And when David was tempted to fear, David dealt with his fear by expositing to himself the truth about his history with God. David thought about God's previous protection in his own life. Look at this, verse 2. When evildoers came upon me. This is a previous event in David's life. We don't know exactly what it was. But this is a previous event in David's life where he was tempted to fear when people came against him and God delivered him. It says, when evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh. Most likely, that doesn't refer to physical danger in combat, but most likely it refers to when someone attacked his character, when someone made him the object of a smear campaign, when an individual tried to slander him. We could look at an example of this if we took the time in Psalm 7. Psalm 7 talks about Cush the Benjamite. Cush the Benjamite who assaulted the character of David. See, David's personal experiences showed that he had been exposed to many situations where he could be tempted to fear. But David's personal experiences also showed him that his God had never failed him, not once. Not once. David's personal experiences with God showed him that his God was faithful. And so David moves from the past in verse 2 to the future in verse 3. In verse 3, though a host encamp against me, Though war rise against me, that's what could happen. That's the potential. That's tomorrow. That's the unknown. David looked at his past and said, this is what God did. And so he looked at the future and says, whatever happens, it's okay. I'm ready because God is faithful. And David wasn't just putting on a brave face. Now, we, we as men, we do that. We put on brave faces and we pretend sometimes not to be afraid when maybe we are. And David, as a, a king and a leader of people and as a commander of the army, would have had perhaps many times when he needed to put on a brave face. But it goes deeper. David is not just putting on a brave face. Look at verse 3 again. He says, though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. David writes and says, my heart will not fear. Now today, in our modern age, we kind of tend to think of the heart in two ways. One of them is that physical organ that kind of squishes all the blood around to my body, tends to get clogged up from eating the good Missouri food that we all eat. 
And we think of the heart that way. The second way that we often think of the heart is we think of, about it as that kind of red paper thing that I go to Hallmark and I pay too much money for so my special someone will be happy with me. Those are the two ways we often think of the heart. But the Scripture uses the, the word heart and the idea of heart in a very different way. When the Scripture talks about the heart, it is talking about the seat or the center of the mind, the emotions, and the will. When David uses the word heart, he's talking about his truest inner self. And so when he says here, my heart will not fear, he's not talking about putting on a brave face. Rather, what he's saying is, in, deep down inside of me, I do not need to fear because I can look at my history with God and see that he is faithful. And I can be encouraged because I've learned to trust him. When I was younger than I am now, I picked up a hobby. Um, I learned to rappel. It's that somewhat irrational desire that people have to take a rope and to back themselves of, over some tall, steep object. When I was 13, I think it was, is when I learned to rappel, and it was just a small 15 or 20-foot wooden tower or wall that had been constructed out in the middle of a grassy field, and I was so scared. I was so scared to go down that wall. I was scared of the danger. And the kind of gruff old scout leader, I think, was a little frustrated with the small, timid, 110-pound boy in front of him, but we got through it together, and I learned how to rappel. Maybe four or five years later, rock climbing and then rappelling became one of my most favorite hobbies. And where before I had struggled with fear to descend a 20-foot wall, in my latter high school years, I was descending 200-foot cliffs, and it didn't bother me at all. Why? Had I learned to fly? No, absolutely not. In fact, the danger had only increased. You can sometimes survive a fall of 20-foot on a grassy plain, but... Falls of 200 feet onto rocks are rarely survived by anyone. The danger had increased, but my fear had gone way, way down. Why? Because I'd learned to trust the rope. I learned to trust that a securely anchored rope with a secure harness was a recipe for safety. David wasn't afraid, no matter how large the dangers got, or no matter how big the temptation to fear, because David had learned to trust in his anchor, in his security, in his God. In his God. You, dear believer, need to learn to think about how God has provided for you, how God has saved you, how God has delivered you time and time again. Take some time and do this. Take some time and think about how has God been faithful to me. And perhaps in this instance, the more seasoned saint has the advantage because instead of just five or ten years to look on, you have 20 or 30 or 40 years to look back upon in your life and say, God has been faithful to me. God has never abandoned me. God has never given up on me. No, not once. Since we've been back in the United States, my wife and I have been taking some road trips, and so we've had some time in the car. And we've had some time to do just this, just to look back in our 15 years of marriage and 20 years of knowing the Lord and see how He has been faithful every single time. I encourage you to think about your personal relationship with your God and to remember that He has never failed you. What are you afraid of? He's never failed you, and the Scriptures teach that He never will. But you know what? More than just that, more than just your relationship with God, you have an even greater privilege. 
For this morning, if you are truly in Christ, you stand in a long line of godly saints. This morning, if you know Jesus, you are part of a greater family that has extended down for centuries, generations. For you are part of the people of God, and God has been saving and delivering and providing for his people for thousands of years. And we have it recorded for us in our Bibles. It's not that dusty old book, but rather it is a wonderful record of what God has done for his people. And it is for us today to be encouraged by. It says so in Romans 15, 4. Whatever was written in earlier times, by the way, that would have referred to the Old Testament. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. When do you need hope? When everything's going great? Or when you're discouraged and afraid? We might have hope because of the word of God which has been recorded for us. Do not forget the history to which you are attached. Do not forget the family to which you belong. You are connected to those people such as David and Moses and Elijah. God was faithful to all of them. God never abandoned Isaiah or Jeremiah. God never left people like Josiah or Hezekiah. God never gave up on Peter or Paul. God has never abandoned his people for thousands of years. You serve a saving and protecting. You serve a faithful God. And his past history with you personally and his past history with other believers throughout the years should give you confidence, should give you trust, should help you to be bold. Present belief in God's future deliverance leads to bold living now. A present belief in God's future deliverance will enable you to live boldly for God today. That's what David was talking about. He considers his history, and then he says, whatever comes in the future, it's okay, because God is with me. The Apostle Paul had a similar thought when he wrote, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Folks, those are some things that I could be afraid of. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril or sword. Those are some fear-inducing situations. And the Apostle Paul said in verse 37 of Romans 8, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him, through him who loved us. Think about your history with your God so that you might find courage for tomorrow, that you might live boldly today. In Psalm 27, we're looking at three considerations, three foci to help us deal with our fear. To deal with your fear, you first need to consider your God. To deal with your fear, you second need to consider your history with your God. And thirdly, in verses 4, 5, and 6, to deal with your fear, you need to consider your desires. You need to consider what it is you hold most dear. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, Psalm 27, 4 again, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. David here is clearly expressing his heartfelt desire. He says, one thing I have asked. That was God. 
David valued God above all else. His greatest desire was to be with God, to know him more. That was great. David's desire, the beat of his heart. And that's how he dealt with his fear. You see, earlier we said fear is moral cowardice. Earlier we said fear is worrying about tomorrow or what I don't know. But fear can also creep in when I value something else so much that the thought of losing whatever it is keeps me from doing right. Fear occurs when I value something else so highly that the thought of losing whatever that may be prevents me from obeying the clear commandments of my God. You see, David was not afraid. Why? Because the object of David's desire, the thing that David desired most, the thing that he valued the highest, was secure. What's that? The Lord. David valued the Lord. He says it. One thing I have asked, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to behold the beauty of the Lord. Now, of course, the Bible teaches that God is omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere all the time. But in the Old Testament, first the tabernacle, and then later the temple, it was the center of religious, religious life. It was the center of, of worship. And so as David expresses a desire to be in the tabernacle, in the temple, he's expressing a desire to worship God, to be with God, to know his God, in an ever-increasing and ever-deepening, intimate, vibrant relationship. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 84.10, A day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. Just to be close to God is better for just a little bit than to be away from him forever. David had one desire, and that was the Lord. Another great man, the Apostle Paul, he also expressed a similar desire when he said in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, that great servant, the Apostle Paul, was not afraid of death. He knew that whether he lived or died, he would realize his greatest desire to be with Christ. See, the one thing Paul wanted more than anything was secure. His greatest desire he could not lose, for God would never abandon Paul, and God would never abandon his servant, King David, as well. But this desire for God did not make these men of God complacent. This security of relationship, they didn't say, okay, it's secure, I don't have to do anything. Rather, this desire for God, while at the same time knowing that relationship was secure, it motivated them to greater levels of service. Philippians 3.13, Brethren, I do not regard myself as, loving, as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, this is Paul, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Rather than relaxing on the couch spiritually, Paul's security pushed him to ever-deepening levels of service and relationship. He wanted to know his God. David wanted to know his God. One thing I have asked from the Lord. Verse 5 of Psalm 27 speaks again of the protection of God, that he would conceal David, that he would hide David, that he would lift David up upon a rock it's a word picture that shows God protecting and providing for David. In verse 6, no matter what comes, David was going to be joyful. David was going to worship. He purposed in his heart. Whatever comes in verse 6, 
It says that David says, I am going to offer up sacrifices with shouts of joy. Because how many of us, when we're tempted to fear, feel joyful? David says, I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. When he was tempted to fear, he could lift his head up and be joyful and sing to his God because he knew his God would never leave him. Because he thought about his God, he thought about his history with God, and he knew his relationship with God would only continue to grow. Dear Christian, this morning I would like to remind you that whatever you greatly value, you will greatly fear to lose. Whatever you greatly value, you will greatly fear to lose. And if you value anything more than God, you perhaps have a reason to be afraid because we can lose it all. In America, we're kind of afraid of losing it all. That's why in America, we insure everything. If you buy a CD player, an MP3 player, a DVD player, any kind of player, you can insure it before it hits your doorstep. That's why in America, we put people in car seats until they're roughly 30 years old. It's always a great joy when you finally get out of that. I want you to know that in the country in which we live, the most common place to find a toddler is on the lap of the driver. There's just a little side note there. I'm not encouraging recklessness, nor am I in any way encourage you to break any federal or state seatbelt laws or car seat laws. But I am asking you to think, because David challenges us that way. He said, one thing I have asked. Ask yourself, what do I desire the most? Ask yourself, what is it that I want above everything else? Ask yourself what you fear to lose, and that will help you find what your greatest desire is. For some odd reason that I don't fully understand, but that is clear through scriptures in life, God sometimes takes people through very hard things. God sometimes allows people to lose everything. Possessions, houses, jobs, even family. God sometimes causes tragedy and uses that in the lives of his people. I don't understand all of that. But if you value anything, including your family, more than God, you're going to have a reason to fear, and you should be. Perhaps that is one of the greatest challenges facing the evangelical world today, is we have fought, especially in America, so hard to recover the emphasis on the, the, the family, and we should. It's a biblical mandate. The, the family is set up by God. But sometimes I believe that we have actually taken family and put it higher than it should be. Because you can lose your family in this life. And I know what we often do is we say, well, I'm just being responsible. I'm just being safe. I'm just being a good steward. And those are biblical principles, to be a good steward, to lead your family well, to, to be a good mother or father, be a good spouse. But what we sometimes write off as safety or good stewardship is really subtly ordinary and commonplace fear, which has wormed its way into our hearts. See, what happens is that we have become so accustomed to living in a fearful society because people all over the world are fearful. People everywhere in every land are fearful if they don't know God. And we live amongst those people, and we are people ourselves, fallen people, although redeemed, 
and we can be influenced by them. And so when we say we're being responsible, sometimes it's just fear with a different label, and we're tempted to do that. And so there is certainly a balance. Again, I'm not encouraging or advocating recklessness, but I will tell you that if you value anything more than your God, you cannot obey Him the way you should. And you will not be able to deal with all your fears because what you value more than God, you can lose. Please don't misunderstand me. I love my family. I love them so much. But the day that I say their safety, security, desires, opportunities for school, opportunities for life, relationships, friendships, whatever, are more important then obeying the clear commands of Scripture is the day I will begin to fear. And I will keep fearing until I put God back in His rightful place. You yourself need to consider your own desires. You need to consider what it is you fear because it very well may be that you are putting something else higher than your relationship with God. Please deal with your fear appropriately. Realign your priorities if they are not where they should be. About two months ago, on June 10th of this year, June 10th, 2014, there's a militant group that you've probably heard of called the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. This group made a lightning advance across western Iraq. They arrived to Mosul, Iraq's second largest city. Iraq at the time was a predominantly Sunni city of a million and a half people, and it just fell apart before the advancing militant group. The Iraqi army apparently just crumbled before the terrorists. It is reported the, the Iraqi army ran away, leaving their posts, leaving their weapons, leaving their duty behind. This is the same army, by the way, that is U.S.-funded, U.S.-trained, and has U.S. military equipment, and they ran away. Perhaps even more disturbing was that it is reported that many of the soldiers who abandoned their posts actually removed their uniforms and put back on civilian clothes so that as they were fleeing out of the city, the insurgents, the terrorists, wouldn't find them and punish them. They feared being identified and having to suffer the consequences of their allegiance to the army. Sometimes Christians tend to want to give in to that fear that they have. Sometimes we want to abandon our duties. Sometimes we are tempted to not obey fully, and so it's as if we took off our marks as Christians and kind of blended in with the unbelieving masses. Because if I obey too much, if I obey too completely, if I obey all the way, what will happen? I'll lose status, my friends. I might get passed over for promotion. My kids might not be able to be on their traveling soccer team. Guys at the university in the frat house will think I'm weird. Folks, that happens. It's fear. It's ordinary. It's commonplace. It's not a fear of a bomb, but it's fear nonetheless, and it is keeping you from obeying your God. It is keeping you from doing what you know to be right. When you are tempted to fear, you must deal with your fear. Consider your God. Remember His faithfulness to you and to thousands of people before you. 
And remember that you need to have God as your greatest and highest desire. You need to value your relationship with Christ above all else. If you can do those things, you, like David, will be able to rejoice, sing, lift up your head in the midst of difficult times. You'll be able to cry like David, my light, my God, the one who's the defense of my life. And then you will begin to deal with your fear in a right and biblical way. Father, thank you for this morning and this precious group of people. Lord, I'm glad to be here with them. I pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning. Lord, we are but people, and we do face circumstances that tempt us to fear. Lord, help us to deal with our fear rightly. Lord, help us to trust in you, our God. We love you so much. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the risen Savior, and the soon-coming King. Amen.